We all know that changing the way you live is not an easy thing, is it? We spend years of our lives being formed by our habits. Some good, but plenty bad. And we, and we think that change sometimes feels impossible. After all, how many Januaries have each of us started with a commitment to eat healthier, to exercise regularly, to read more, to finally finish those projects we've started around the house, or whatever fill-in-the-blank resolution, only to find that we fall away from our goals almost immediately. Writers like Malcolm Gladwell tells us that it takes upwards of 10,000 hours of practice to become a master in any given circumstance. And that's a daunting task. That's not a little amount of time. But even in the more um, positive side of things, some experts suggest It only really takes two or three weeks of daily practice for anything to become an ingrained habit, but sometimes those two or three weeks are the most difficult part of the journey. And so any way you look at it, really, change is just not easy. And now the time has come for Israel to change the way they live. But they have to overcome 430-some years that they've been formed by their slavery. All they've ever known is hard labor, is relentless work. They've had to claw for every morsel they've ever had. They've had to savor every minute of rest that they could scrounge together. And it's this mentality that's making them so anxious that here in the middle of the wilderness, they think if they don't work themselves to the bone, then they will die. And so today, Israel is being given their next test. Will they trust that God will not only provide for their needs, but provide for their needs in such a way that they can truly rest in Him? That's the next test that Israel faces. Now before we jump into that, last week you remember that Israel, after crossing the Red Sea, went three days without water. The upper limit of what a human body can go with without some serious repercussions. And understandably so, they began to grumble. But we remember that Moses talked to the Lord and He provided them with good water. Well then, a few weeks later, they worried that they would run out of food all over again. They hadn't run out yet, but they were worried they would. And Moses again talked to the Lord who provided both quail in the evening and manna in the morning. And so we saw that Israel failed their first test of faith. They didn't trust Him for bread or or for water or bread. And now today we see that test happens all over again. We'll see now. Will they fail this new test? Will they fail the test to rest in the Lord as He provides them. Not with water and bread, but bread and water. And so, we know as, as human beings that God made us in such a way that we have needs. We're not self-sufficient creatures. But we also know that He made us to have exactly what we need. When He made man and woman and put them in the garden, He placed them in a habitat, in a place where they would have exactly what they need. And an abundance of what they need, even. And that shows us that God is the One 
who gives us everything we need. And Proverbs 30, verse 8, Augur, this kind of mysterious, unknown reader of the, the, the Proverbs of Solomon, prays to the Lord. He says this. He says, Give me neither poverty, poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food that I need. That was his great prayer of wisdom. Don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. Give me exactly what I need. And likewise, we see Jesus in the New Testament teach us to pray this way. So we've been studying on Sunday nights with the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Not give us a week's worth of bread, a month's worth of bread. Give us this day exactly what we need. And here, folks, we see that this is the remarkable experience that the Israelites have. We read that they go out to gather this mysterious bread that they find on the ground. And this is an interesting detail, and one we shouldn't pass over. Some gathered a lot, and some gathered a little. But when they got back with their basket full into their tents and started measuring and sorting it out, we see that although some gathered too much and some gathered not enough, in verse 18, lo and behold, we read this, the person who gathered too much had no surplus. And the person who gathered too little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. See here, folks, we're getting a glimpse of the Lord's plan for His people. Not scarcity, but neither surplus, but sufficiency. And so Moses says, eat it all. Because this is your daily bread. Eat it all. Don't save any crumbs for the morning. Because God will provide a whole new meal when tomorrow comes. That's the thinking that Moses is trying to instill in all of God's people. Trust in the Lord. He's provided your meal today. And He said He'll provide it again tomorrow. Remember, the the food they're getting in the morning is mysterious bread that appears out of nowhere. But do they listen to Moses in this... um, in this advising to not gather any more than they needed? No. In fact, we see that old habits really do die hard. These people have only ever been slaves. They're so used to squirreling away every extra bit so that they would never go without. But now, they're not slaves any longer. That may have been the way they used to live in Egypt, but these are free Men and women. The Lord who's liberated them has shown them time and again He'll always provide for their needs, but still, like us, they just don't want to believe it. And so Moses gets angry with them that they doubt God. And all of their trust in themselves or planning ahead gets them nowhere because lo and behold, in the morning they open the basket and the bread... It smells rotten and it's got maggots in it. It's not going to be sufficient for them for the day. They're going to have to trust God and go out and gather what they need all over again. But even though these people doubted and 
disbelieved and even disobeyed. Look how gracious God is still with these people. On the sixth day, Friday, that's the the day before Sabbath, they go out to gather and they find that they have twice as much as they thought they did when they got home. See, before they were going out, some got too much, some got too little, but when they got home, they have exactly what they need. Then they go out again, gathering for one day, and then they get home and find that they have enough for two days, even if they didn't realize they had gathered that. And so confused, they go to Moses, who already has an answer for them in verse 23. He says, tomorrow, namely Saturday, that's going to be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So today, bake what you want, boil what you want, set it aside for tomorrow. And so, in the middle of all of Israel's hang-ups about their old ways, the Lord introduces something totally new and unexpected and refreshing. He introduces the idea of a Sabbath. The idea of a day of rest. This is something that we haven't read about in the Scriptures since the beginning when God rested on the seventh day. That's the last time we've heard anything about this. So this has been a completely forgotten ritual to humanity. But the way God frames the Sabbath is not how the Israelites want to understand it. Old Testament scholar Christopher J.H. Wright explains, delightfully, the day is announced not as a restrictive regulation. It's not given as restriction, but as an explanation for the double supply of manna the day before. See, this means what he's saying here is that when God gives Israel a day of rest, where they're not to work, where they're not to gather, He gives it not as a a restriction, but as a grace. It's not as um, something to, to hold them down. It's a gift to replenish and help them. And He provides for them in that day as well. Remember, this is not something they're supposed to do as slaves. This is something they're supposed to enjoy as truly free people. And what greater gift could God promise them than complete rest? They've gone for four centuries without real rest. And now God promises that it's not going to be up to them to take care of all their needs, that to, to, to worry and plan and struggle to survive. No, they're going to every week get a day where He provides everything they need. Now, dare I pose this question to us, church? When the Lord promises us spiritual rest, all who are weary from this world and all its demands, all of us who are heavy laden from the burden of work and suffering, will we too stop our planning, our scheming, our worrying, our squirreling away and simply come to Jesus? who gives us rest. Jesus, who is gentle, who knows how tough life is with its strain and its stresses. Jesus, who is lowly in heart, who stoops down to embrace us in our 
and our poverty and depression and loneliness and grief. See, rest is a miraculous gift of God. We see this both at the creation, when God rests Himself, establishing a paradigm for us, but He doesn't let that idea go. It comes up in our redemption. Once He has saved Israel, He gives them a day of rest. The Lord is serious about this blessing for His people. And a world that is so relentlessly sweating under the curse of sin, working hard to survive, what a gift, what a grace it is to us to be able to rest in Him. Not only to find time where we can physically stop and trust that the Lord will provide for our needs, but also spiritually stop worrying about our worth and if we're good enough, and if God will love us, and if we can earn our way into His good graces, and just simply rest in Him. To rest in God is to pass the test. It's to pass the test of trusting God to be our God, and not for us to be our own God. Resting, therefore, is a revolutionary act, church. Because it shows us in a world that's always in crisis, that's always going to have wars and rumors of wars, that's always going to have poverty, that's always going to have sickness, a world that's always in need, a world that's always passing away, what it shows is that we trust in the Lord for everything we need and for our rest. Not in ourselves, not in our nation, not in our institutions, not in our traditions, not in our possessions, not in our good deeds, not in our doctrines. We trust in Him alone. So what's bothering you today? What's causing you to worry about Monday morning? Will you trust that He will provide for you? Can you trust that in Him you can truly and completely be at rest? Now that's easier said than done, isn't it? Because it was for the Israelites too. We see in them a reflection of ourselves. We're fortunate that our life is not put on display for billions of readers throughout the centuries. Because we'd look just like this. Because we read in verse 27, after this good news has been given to them, hey, guess what? You, every week, you're going to get a day where you can rest and the Lord works for you. Just a glimpse of the glory that's had. We read in verse 27, well, on the seventh day, they wake up early and they go to work anyway. See, they remember how this bread, this manna from heaven, rotted every other morning and they didn't believe that God could preserve it on this seventh day. But lo and behold, it didn't rot. And that word of promise that they got from Moses that they'll have what they need on Sunday morning or on on, uh, Saturday morning was true. See, it shows that it it was never about their hard work. It was never about their good planning that got them where they were. It was about the Lord's provision. And so when they try to take matters into their own hands and go out and gather some anyways, just to be on the safe side, they go out and find that there's nothing there. The only way they can 
survive that day is to trust in what the Lord's already given them. They can't find any food that day. So it turns out that when God wants this bread to last, it will last. And when God wants this bread to wither, it will wither. See, it's up to His desire what happens to it, not according to their labor. That's the same as it is today. See, the most poisonous idea that our culture has ever fed us is that we are self-made people. That it's our hard work, our cleverness, our talent, our skill, or our entrepreneurial spirit that got us where we are today. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because the reality for all of us, whatever stage in life, whether we've got plenty in the bank or barely enough to cover the next bill, whether the house note is paid off or we're having to refinance, whether the the car is looking beautiful or you have to take it into the shop, whether the the kids are, are, are well behaved and doing good in school or you're just wondering how you're going to get through the next family meal. Whatever the case may be, we need to remember it's the Lord is the one who provides to both the weak and the strong. He's the one that provides to the poor and to the rich. And He's the one that provides to the ignorant and to the intelligent because that's exactly how God's grace works. It's a gift for us to receive not a status to be achieved or a work to be done. It's a gift to live our life believing anything that we've ever bought or made or achieved is not a grace from God. It is the utmost foolishness. Especially for a Christian. And the Lord responds to Israel in verse 28, like He would respond to us, how long will you refuse to keep My commands and My instructions? How long are you going to play this game where you think it's up to you for your own survival? It's the Lord who provides for our needs from Sunday through Thursday. And it's the Lord who provides double of what we need on Friday and Saturday too. The only admonition He gives to these people through Moses is stay still. Do not go out to work. Stay in your place. Trust Him and rest in Him. That's the same message that we need to hear today with a world that's in chaos We don't know if we're going to have food shortages, uh, gasoline shortages, uh, 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 a disastrous housing market, looming crisis of, of all manner. It's not for us to go out there and work to get it fixed ultimately. It's for us to trust and rest in God who has it well under His control. That's where obedience starts for us. If we can't get down trusting the Lord and resting in Him, I don't know how we think we're going to change the world. 
there's plenty of problems in the world, but if we can't even, for our personal lives, trust in Him, how are we going to help anybody else or any other problem in our society? Well, verse 31 tells us that they acquiesce to Moses and to the Lord, but probably uneasily, because they're stubborn just like we are. But they finally decide to name this miracle bread. We know what they name it. They name it manna. Hilariously, that word literally means what? (laughs) So that's what they call the food. They call it what? I mean, it really is almost an Abbott and Costello skit. Hand me that what? What? Exactly. Wait, what? I mean, it's, it's just, it's ridiculous. I personally think we're supposed to read this and, and kind of laugh, chuckle to ourselves, laugh at their foolishness and laugh at our own ignorance. And more importantly, laugh because God is so good to us when we are so undeserving. He gives us all we need and then more even when we have no idea where it comes from or even what it is we need, He has a way of providing it for us. Something interesting happens at the end of this story. Moses tells them that the Lord tells him that he wants to set aside a day's amount of bread. That's about two quarts by our count. Because one day that's going to be enshrined in their this great and holy relic in the life of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, along with the Ten Commandments uh, uh, written on stone and Moses' staff. But it's interesting that the order here, I think, matters. Because the first thing the Lord wants put in is that bowl of manna. And I think that's a symbol because it's supposed to show us that God's gift and His grace And His provision comes even before His commands. His grace always precedes His law. And even when Israel insists on doing things the hard way, and they do, which is why they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, God's grace still does not fade away. It merely waits for a fresh new opportunity to bless them all over again even if it takes a lifetime. Well, at this point, their food supply is assured. Every single day, quail in the evening, man in the morning, they have everything they need. And so they should be good to go, right? Well, well, water, and what do they do? What should they do? Let's ask that question first. Maybe trust that God will provide it. Maybe rest, knowing that every time they've run into a wall, He makes a doorway for them. But what do they do instead? They complain. And it goes beyond that. It's even worse. They not only complain, but they demand that Moses gives them water. And even worse, we read, they are the ones that try to test the Lord about His faithfulness. The Hebrew word that's used here is stronger than the words we've read before, grumble and complain. When they complain here, it's really the same word that's used in, in ancient Hebrew. To, uh, it's closer to the idea of accuse from a legal perspective. So in other words, they want to take God to court over this. They want to sue Him. 
for not having the water they need. And again, in verse 3, they slander Moses and the Lord by asking, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us, our children, and even our animals with thirst? If we've been keeping up with the story, it's the most outrageous thing that they could say. And if we're honest, it's the very attitude that we so often have before the Lord. Not one of weak faith seeking understanding. Not one even of shaky trust desperately clinging to Christ. But one of open, arrogant contempt for what the Lord has done. The situation is so bad that Moses cries out in a panic. He says, what am I supposed to do with these people? They're ready to bash my skull in with a rock. And the Lord answers in a very interesting way, starting in verse 5. He calls for Moses and the rest of the elders to go a little bit ahead of the people. Have the people stay there and you continue on your journey just a little bit. And Moses, make sure you bring that same staff that struck the Nile. Remember that, Moses, when you took that staff and you hit the water and Egypt's life-giving water became this death-causing blood? Do you remember that? I want you to go to Horeb, also known to us as Mount Sinai, Israel would later receive not only the Ten Commandments, but the entire covenant of God. Go to Horeb, and you're going to see a rock. A rock on which I'm standing, the text says. And you're going to take your staff, the one that you struck the water with, and this time you're going to strike the rock, and it's not going to turn it to blood, but rather it's going to turn it to water. Water is going to pour forth from this rock and it's going to be water that the people can drink. So the Bible tells us that's exactly what Moses did. That he was obedient to how he was instructed and the elders went and watched as witnesses to what the Lord promised. And sure enough, Moses hit the rock and water started gushing forth. And they named the area, or rather he named the area, Massa. Which means a place of testing. And they all, he also called the area Meribah, meaning a place of controversy. Why? Well, it's because Israel wanted to start a controversy with God. And God, in turn, tested their faith and they failed again for the third time in as many months. Israel has failed failed the very simple test to trust God and to rest in Him. Folks, do you see yourself in this story like I see myself? Do you see how the Lord has been good to His Word for you? He's been faithful to His covenant. How He's taken care of you through thick and thin. How He's loved you when you were alone. How He's helped you when you were powerless. How He gave you grace when all you could seem to muster is doubt and disobedience? See, the wonderful thing about these testing stories isn't that Israel fails them or that we ourselves would fail them in Israel's uh, place or that we fail the Lord in our daily lives. The wonderful thing about this story is that it reveals how the Lord never fails us. Even more than that, we see how He never fails us. And He never fails us 
and the person or the work of Jesus Christ. See, that's what this story is all about. Paul gives us the definitive interpretation of this. And 1 Corinthians 10, 3-4, he says what this really means. He says, our ancestors all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. See, this whatever was happening in, in, in the wilderness, the, the bread they ate, the water they drank, pointed them forward to their one true need being fulfilled in Jesus, who fills them up with everything they could need. See, church, when God stood on top of the rock, which is a strange detail, and he was and, and the rock was struck, it reminds us that God's own Messiah was stricken for Israel's transgressions, was wounded for our iniquities. See, Jesus throughout Scripture is the stone of Israel in Genesis 29. He's the rock of salvation in Deuteronomy 18. He's the rock who is a fortress and a refuge for all who will come to Him in Psalm 18. He's the chief cornerstone, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. See, Jesus was also struck down by us. And His side poured not with just blood, but with water. Life and life eternal for all who fail the test. Jesus passed the test of faithfulness so that by coming to Him, we by partaking of the life that He gives, are now passing the test. Not by our own merit, not by our own wisdom, by our own good deeds, our own doctrines, but He has passed the test for us. And when we come and rest in Him, we find mysteriously that we have passed the test too. So come, Christian. Come this morning. Even in your minds, you don't have to step a foot out of your pew. If you thirst for healing, for reconciliation, for forgiveness, for resurrection. Come, Christian, to Jesus. Drink of Christ and thirst no more. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we are not wise or strong or good enough to pass the test of faith. But Father, we know that Jesus Christ has passed the test for us. He's our spiritual bread and our spiritual drink. So help us to stand upon Him, our solid rock, and drink a plenty so that we may thirst no more. And we pray this all in His name. Amen.